Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Kavita Bala. Kavita is chair of the Department of Computer Science at Cornell University, as well as a research advisor at Facebook. Kavita, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this talk. You recently gave a keynote at the Woman in Computer Vision Workshop uh, about some of your work, uh, and we will get deep into that in the course of our discussion. But let's please start out by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in computer vision. Yeah, absolutely. So I have started off, so I'll just describe my academic background and more recent uh, stuff that I've been doing. I got my bachelor's in the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay, and then I came to MIT for my PhD, my master's and my PhD. And in fact, that started off in uh, systems in, in computer science. And then I switched into computer graphics. And uh, I got interested in computer graphics because I was very interested in sort of understanding images. And I liked the visual aspect and the perceptual aspects of understanding images. So I started off in computer graphics. And then because of my interest in human perception, I actually tried, started doing work more on the boundary of computer graphics and computer vision. And now my work sits sort of firmly in that, in on the vision and the graphics side of boundary. So I do on the graphic side, I've been very interested. I really do see them as sort of a yin and a yang. On the graphic side, they're very interested in building up models of the world, you know, whether it's a shape or the materials or the lighting in the world, and producing images that look real. And the vision is the exact uh, converse problem. You have these great real-world images, and you're trying to figure out what is the underlying model that created that image. So I've been very intrigued by both those sides of the question, and so that's where I sit with my research. Got it, got it. And do those sides, are they kind of independent streams of, of research or do they inform one another and influence one another? That's a great question. It's actually, for me, because of the human perception side of it, that there is a very strong tie between the two. But there's lots of researchers who sit squarely only on one side or the other side because they're looking at parts of the problem that don't overlap. But yeah. if you have this interest in perception, then I think that there's such a strong tie that you, you do see end up seeing both sides of them. And when you say perception, what is it about perception that ties them together strongly? So on the graphic side, you're producing images, but for whom? There's a person who is going to be the consumer of that image, who's trying to then understand what you try to sort of stuff into the image so that they understand the world. For example, you know, on the graphics uh, research, one of the questions I ask is, what makes silk look like silk? And if you understand why silk looks like silk or velvet looks like velvet, you can then produce realistic images of silk and velvet, which is very important for textile modeling and for, of course, for the entertainment industry, et cetera. And that perception question, you flip it around on the vision side, when you have an image of cloth, recognizing whether it's silk or velvet is something a human being can do automatically, but a vision algorithm right now still struggles. So in fact, mm -hmm. material recognition on both sides was one of the ways I got into, into research on both of these uh, directions. Awesome. Awesome. So your research led you to found a, a startup uh, called Grok Style that played in this area. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what you were doing there. Thanks. Yeah, that was that's that's been a very very fun and eye opening experience. So I talked a bit about uh, you know what I did. Uh, I as I said I did my bachelor's my. Uh, 
PhD. And then I came to uh, Cornell and I've been an academic at Cornell my whole sort of my whole life, so to speak, from 2002. Then I had, uh, while we were doing this material recognition uh, research that I talked to you about, where we are trying to understand, take a picture and try to recognize all the materials in it. My student who was working with me at that time, Sean Bell, and I got very intrigued. We were looking at all of these images of great interiors of homes, because in our houses, we typically have a rich variety of materials and we wanted to recognize them. And if you want to design, for example, a robot, a house cleaning robot, it would need to recognize what materials it's seeing and play with it. So that's sort of what motivated our uh, research when we're doing material recognition. And while we were doing that, we actually were browsing all of these great sites, these interior design sites of places where people would post great images of homes uh, that they were building or that they had seen. And they would ask questions like, I wonder what that, you know, that countertop looks like it's marble. Is it really marble? What is it actually? And this led us to sort of realizing that there was a real hunger for the problem, which is called fine-grained visual recognition, which is not only recognizing that a table is a table or a chair is a chair, but going that extra step beyond and saying, this chair is the Eames chair, or that uh, table is the Ikea, you know, Mammoth table. And if you know that, and this is something that a, a random you know, consumer or a user who's looking at a picture, they know they like it, but they don't know what it is. And so that gives them an expert level knowledge that is available at their fingertips if you could solve that problem. So that, that got us, so Sean and I got really excited about that. And we wrote a paper at SIGGRAPH. This is in 2015, so it's been a while now. But in our first paper, we wrote about this visual recognition problem, how you could use deep learning for it with the right combination of data, the right learning architecture, and the right sort of all, all the magic pieces that go into making something that works end to end. We demonstrated that you can get really high quality visual, fine-grained visual recognition. And that, that launched off our company. Uh, Let's dig into those magic pieces a little bit. What are some of the key differences between the techniques that we would use to solve the coarse grain problem, which we do very well uh, and are kind of, you know, we can get standard off the shelf components that are fairly sophisticated uh, and this fine grain problem, which uh, I think is still a bit more challenging, correct? Yeah, it is quite a bit more challenging. And uh, I can tell you, so, you know, there are different pieces of it. One is we use the Siamese network. So you actually are training an embedding. So instead of actually uh, just a classifier, you're training an entire embedding where, you know, you can think of it as sort of, you need to know what your place in the world is. So it's like a global map, things that look similar cluster in, in, in the common part of an embedding, things that are dissimilar go to different parts of the embedding. So first is, you know, this idea of using Siamese networks at that time was was lots of deep learning ideas had been explored, you know, decades ago, but people weren't using it quite in this context of using it for fine grain recognition. And that was our first insight. Let's take that. But then the question was, how do you actually train it? You have some amount of data. So you get, you know, these designer photographs, let's say, that say, um, here's a picture of this particular item. So it's this um, a pendulum or, you know, say a, a pendulum let's say, or, or a, a pendulum sort of light. And uh, you have the picture that you get from the catalog, which is this perfect image that comes from the manufacturer against a white background. It's all beautiful. <laughs> then there's some real world photographs. Somebody took it in their living room and they showed how they're using it in their space. Right. How 
correlate these two is a hard problem. And you put this through the Siamese network, which says they're the same thing. Even though they look completely different pixel for pixel, if you were to do comparisons between those two images, they look completely different, but they're the same thing. So you then train your embedding to pull similar things together and then push dissimilar things apart. And after two weeks of training, you arrive at an embedding that actually represents sort of the visual, uh, the visual reality of that of that domain. So, so that was you know, so that was our first realization is that you have to do that. But then again, some of the magic is that you have to set up the right sort of normalizations, et cetera, so mm-hmm. that we publish this all in our paper and we put it out there. But th- that helps in really creating a robust uh, learning process rather than something that's pretty fragile. Is the ability to go from the kind of in the wild picture taken on the cell phone camera to, um, you know, something that's taken in a more sterile environment, is that a unique property of the Siamese network or is it part of the training process, domain adaptation and data augmentation techniques and the like? It's the Siamese network is basically saying that these utterly dissimilar looking things, pixel Mm -hmm. for pixel, are the same thing. So that's where it's set up with these loss functions that pull together the similar and push apart the dissimilar things. And in fact, so when we had first started this, we, you know, published this paper in 2015. Mm -hmm. I can tell you the whole story of the startup, but fast forward, GrokNet, which was, uh, and should I talk about GrokNet, which was... uh, just uh, released by Facebook, uh, which is based on the Grok style work, essentially is the same idea at its core, except many, many more dim- domains, a lot more data, and a mm-hmm. few more tweaks to the error function. So that, but at its core, that's sort of the high level idea. Once you get that, you can go actually very far with it. And, and is this idea of the uh, the Siamese network architecture? Is that um, you know are, are all networks where you're training embedding and embedding space end to end? Are they all you know, the same? Is that, is there something, you know, something unique about the Siamese network that is different from other approaches to training and embedding? Yeah. I mean, different people will use different types of losses, et cetera, but the core architecture there that was used as actually pretty robust and ends up being uh, underlying a lot of, a lot of solutions that people use. Okay, cool. But there are different kinds of losses, et cetera, that people said there's, you know, hundreds of papers and different, different alternatives. But the, you know, the GrokNet paper actually uh, was pretty, so we created GrokStyle, the team went over to uh, Facebook. So Facebook acquired, so I, I'll tell you a little bit about the story of GrokStyle. So GrokStyle, we launched it for fine grain recognition. Then we partnered with IKEA actually. Uh, and IKEA was very interested in adding visual recognition in their augmented reality app. So in augmented reality, well, in furniture, you really want to visualize a piece of furniture in your house before you buy it. So AR makes a lot of sense in that context. But once you have, say, you have an existing piece of furniture, finding out what it is, seeing what complements it, et cetera, are all good use cases. So they added our visual recognition into it. We were on the radar of Facebook. And then last year, Facebook acquired Grokstar. And then this, this was in 2019. And then in 2020, in May, they announced GrokNet, which is their core AI to make every image shockable. It's based on Grok style. And actually, Sean Bell, who's my PhD student, was my PhD student, and is now at Facebook, is, is heading up the project. They have a KDD paper on what GrokNet does. And as I said, it has 
much more data. You know, it has every form of data. We had started off with furniture, but now it has furniture, fashion, automobiles, and other forms. It has 83 different loss functions, but sort of three of them are sort of these core, you know, uh, Siamese type losses that are there. And there are some variants on them. And once you add that in, you have something that actually is now powering commerce in at sort of a Facebook scale. Uh, elaborate on the this idea of 83 loss functions and how they come in. Are they are they all trained simultaneously or are they, you know, trained in, in stages or phases or layers or or something like that? So they are trained. There's a, there's a lot of magic to that and the KDD paper. <laughs> but actually, they're, they're, it's just primarily 80 of them approximately are to get those various data sets in. And then about three of them are actually that losses that pull things together and push them apart. So those are the ones that you use. And there was sort of this double margin. We had originally had a very simple uh, function that pulls together and pushes apart to learn the embedding. Here, there's a slightly more uh, you know, sophisticated version that gives you a little more robustness to noise, et cetera, that gets added. Got it. And so is it, you know, can you think of it as kind of like a, an ensemble type of thing where a particular one of these uh, loss functions will be come into play when we're talking about sweaters versus tables versus yeah. something else? Yeah. So it adds a lot of that domain, various domains and various data sets that are coming in and it helps you yeah, incorporate them all into one thing. Got it. Got it. And we'll be sharing in the show notes video. We'll be linking to the video of your CVPR keynote. And there's a very cool segment of that about 40 minutes in where you go through the demonstration of this system. It looks pretty cool in terms of, you know, take a picture of a or point the, the camera at a piece of furniture. It tells you uh, in fine detail, like even down to the pillows, um, you know, what those are. Uh, I guess I'm presuming that those are well, maybe let me ask this as a, a question. In the case of that example where you're identifying the a, a specific branded pillow, would the way that this be used is you've got a base model and then you fine tune on a catalog or something like that? Or do you have to train deeply on the catalog? Is there a transfer learning type of element to this? Uh, so uh, the details of the, the KDD stuff are actually, I was not involved in some parts of that work, but the catalog, yeah, you keep adding as new parts come in, you incorporate them in with the existing embedding. So you're not going to go and just completely throw everything off, but there's a pretty mm -hmm. stable and then you add them in and you incorporate them. Mm -hmm. And there, there was a, an interesting AR angle to that as well, where it, is there any ML AI component to that or is that... You know, traditional, you have this digital model of the piece of furniture and you're just placing it in space with AR kit or whatever you're using. So in the original one, that was the, it was pretty separate. So the, the AR piece was completely separate, but it was doing its own thing. Longer term, right, adding those digital models in for the training and robustness actually is an interesting thing, too, which is something that we, we you know, we looked at in various forms, too. Um, and that's how we see one of the parts that actually where it will keep as these models improve in quality and uh, they will help you with sort of the long tail of distribution of, of uh, products that you might not actually otherwise be able to recognize. Uh, but so are you saying there that are, are you alluding to training on a 3D digital model as opposed to a 2D image and using that to inform the, the model? So 
yeah, we found that actually having both of those helps with robustness. Now, that's not what uh, the Facebook thing is doing. The solution yeah. is doing. In fact, we, that's what we did in Grokstar, where we actually have played with having both together. And it was, it does result in much more robustness to various angle variations, et cetera, and you know, a lot more variety that you can add in. And so that was certainly something we had explored in Grokstar. And did you did you flatten the 3D images to a 2D projection to so that they can be yeah, we fed, useful to a CNN or something? We fed them in a pretty traditional way, but it was more that we explored a richer variety by the, using the 3D model. Yeah. Interesting. So yes, there's been interesting work also in looking at sort of the 3D 3D CNNs itself, right? Which is yeah. a a whole different game. And actually, as we get, you know, one of the applications of this technology is definitely within an AR mixed reality kind of a context. So going forward, I think all of these are going to get quite a bit more sophisticated in terms of incorporating virtual 3D data. Right now, the, the material models, et cetera, tend to be a little limited, but they could go they could go far. And when you talked about the, the GrokNet being released recently, what is that release? Is that a data set? Is that a, a paper? Is that a service? Is that a model that you can download? Yeah. So they have, so Drocknet has been deployed, I believe, within the commerce side of Facebook so that it is used for captioning, automatic captioning. So when a person uploads an image, then uh, it automatically provides captions, it does recognition, et cetera. So they see this as sort of the core engine that they're going to use to continue to train up, to do as they say, make every image uh, shoppable, which means mm-hmm. right now it's for some set of domains, but the hope is to make every aspect and every domain to be completely recognized. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that you are a biased believer in this vision, but lots of folks have been going after this uh, for a long time, you know, not just, you know, Pinterest and, and the like, but also, you know, we've talked about this in the context of that, you know, that old technology TV, right, where the TV providers would be able to, you know, on demand uh, or pull out products and offer them and has yeah. never quite materialized. Do you, is there I, something, yeah, what's yeah. your take on, on the space in general? I'm definitely a believer, right? <laughs> I, I, I believe that, yes. So I do believe, and in fact, I'll talk about sort of, you know, I've actually moved on to the next uh, sort of how you, assuming this stuff works, what do you do with it? But let me, I, I am a true believer in this for sure. Uh, video and recognition at scale, as you're walking around, having every part of your image being fully annotated with a fully recognized understanding of not only at the highest scale, at the most detailed scale, what am I seeing? Is this this particular detail, but also meta information, the history of the item, all of these I see as being something that will be available to you as you walk around with your AR sort of mixed reality glasses or something else. And um, there's a very interesting movie, I don't know if you've seen it, called Anon, which was available on Netflix. It's a, actually quite a dystopian world, but it's mm-hmm. talking about something called the mind's eye, which is sort of this retinal implant. And as you walk around, uh, there's a full overlay of everything you see has an overlay of information with it so that you can explore. You basically are plugged into this full knowledge, comprehensive knowledge of the world you're in. I think that's actually a very exciting interface that I hope we will be able to realize. And that means that every image, every video, everything, everything in person you see will be recognizable and tagged with information. Now, there's all kinds of security 
implications of such a thing, of course, and privacy implication. And of course, society has to look into those. They're very important to get right. So I see that as also going hand in hand with the kind of development of this kind of technology. But what's interesting is how much it could potentially enrich your life if you have all of that information available on your fingertips as you're walking around in the world, right? If you walk across a tree or a flower, it immediately recognizes it for you. It just enriches your life to know all of the things that you're potentially interacting with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your personal take or read on the societal implications and how do you balance uh, balance those or kind of answer for yourself the question of on the balance, should this be something that exists? I was just reading an article about, uh, I guess the Slate published an article about Customs and Border, Border Patrol has access to some database of scan license plates and apparently they're crowdsourcing them. They give people, some company gives people these license plate scanners and they just, you know, random people driving around with these scanners. And as you know, we're, and as you've alluded to, we're moving to this, this world where everything's recorded on some camera and uploaded to, to some cloud. How do you parse whether, you know, that is what creates the dystopia that was alluded to in your movie or, you know, whether there are other factors? I think it's a fundamental question and it is critical for us as a society to grapple with it. So I think it is one of the most important questions we need to deal with. And actually different uh, societies and different cultures are arriving at different places as to whether they believe they should respect that privacy of an individual or not, mm-hmm. right? You know, the EU has a very different set of laws. You're, you're, the US has a different set of laws and uh, different parts, you know, different countries, China, for example, have very different set of laws. Mm-hmm. I believe that we... so. From a technological point of view, I think we should develop the technologies and also keep privacy-preserving aspects of it as fundamental to how we develop these technologies. So we should think about privacy-preserving X, you know, privacy-preserving machine learning, you know, when you can learn large-scale, you know, useful because the recognition that you get through, you know, the, the algorithms you learn are actually incredibly useful, right? They have made society more productive. There's lots of positive benefits, but there is clearly the negative side to it too. So you, des- you while you design your technologies, you keep an eye on this aspect that you might want to preserve privacy in it. And separately, I think you actually have to have that societal and policy engagement where there are clear policies about what and clear teeth with the policies that come with it as to what the society wants to sustain, what aspects of privacy it wants to maintain, and how we should go make sure that, you know, that's executed on in all of the technology companies that releases. So I think this is a critical question and we should definitely do it. I'm not of the position that though, because that there is a danger of that there is, it can be used badly, that you should not invest in this technology at all and pull back. That's not reasonable. What the right thing to do is to design the mechanisms to protect the the values that we hold dear, and privacy is one of them, and make sure that they can be executed upon. And this requires, you know, innovation, not only in the algorithms, also sometimes hardware, right, your trusted computer base, and what, you know, how you preserve privacy there. So all the way uh, is what you need to maintain. And I think that's how we should approach this investment. Mm-hmm. How far have we gotten in terms of integrating the work that's happening around privacy, preserving machine learning and embeddings in general and or the specific work? Are those are they kind of orthogonal concerns or does your does the you know Siamese net, for example, have to be aware of, you know, differential privacy or some kind of privacy preserving technique in order for it all to work? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, so the kinds of work that we've done in the case of recognition, where you're applying it for, you know, products and stuff, there's not so much of a problem, you know, it's actually okay. But yes, when you get to face recognition, for example, that's the kind of dangerous technology where it's, you have to be very careful in how you, and there's also health data and things like that, right? When you when you have that embedded in, you have to be very careful in designing it from the from the get-go to actually have that kind of, pref- uh, you know, privacy preservation in it. So I think that's, how far has it gotten? I think it's a very, very open ongoing area of research that people are continuing to explore and push on and hopefully we get to useful places. But I think it's wide open. Okay. Uh, so your work on Grok style kind of set the stage for you to start to explore some kind of broader cultural implications of this kind of approach. Tell us a little bit about, about those. Yeah, so I got very interested, you know, when you're looking at this problem of how do you make an image, you know, fully understandable. So fully shoppable was the first one I said, but let's assume we have that technology. So fast forward 10 years, we do all the innovations and we have a way so that every image that we have available to us is fully uh, understandable. What can I do with that knowledge? And think of it as, you know, let's say there's sort of a hundred years from now, somebody's going through our historical images, trying to understand who we are. So there's an anthropologist who's looking back in time and trying to understand who we are. It turns out that we uh, are recording ourselves at an unprecedented rate, right? We're storing, whether it's on Instagram or on Facebook or, you know, any of your technologies, we are recording ourselves and posting information about ourselves online, which it turns out is this giant camera of the entire planet. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a, a planet-sized camera, what can you understand about the planet? So I'm working with cultural anthropologists, and this is a joint work with Noah Snavely, uh, Kevin Madsen, Utkar Shmal, and Bharat Hariharan. These are all my Cornell collaborators who are looking at these questions of take all of the images from social media and can we understand people? Can we understand what do people wear? What do they eat? Who do they, who do they hang out with? Or, you know, what kind of social groups do they hang out with? You know, do they hang out in pairs, in big groups? Uh, what do they do? What kinds of activities they do, do they do? And how do people do these things differently in different parts of the world? So this is where the cultural um, anthropologists are very interested. So normally how a cultural anthropologist would work is they would go and they would visit a site. So they would visit a different country. They would go and embed themselves there for a few months. They do interviews, you know, with a handful of people and they try to say, yeah, you know, this in this place, they are very, you know, these are the kinds of clothes they wear. This is kind of what they eat. These are kind of the, the social norms. And instead we have this world size camera that can give you all that information, the visual information that you can find. So that's what motivated this sort of uh, work that I've been doing. One, uh, we have two projects. One is called Street Style and the other is called GeoStyle. And we started looking at the first problem. What do people wear around the world? So how do they dress similarly or differently around the world? And this has ended up being an incredibly rich uh, sort of exploration of human of the human race. And by the way, you know, when we're talking about, you have to be very careful talking about the privacy issue. As I had said before, you can actually do this in a privacy preserving. You can block out the faces. It's not about the faces. You're actually just trying to understand what people wear in different parts of the world. Uh, but you do want to be careful when you're asking these questions. What is everybody doing at every day? It's not Big Brother. It's more understanding actually population distribution. So it's understanding how we work as a group, not about violating any individual's privacy. 
So, okay, so what do we do? So first thing we did is just let's look at how people dress across the world. And so we recognize, you know, we apply a standard sort of detect the body, recognize what a person is wearing, you know, what's the top, what's the bottom, are they wearing glasses or not, et cetera. So there was some very simple set of attributes. But then what we did is, you know, just like that embedding, I told you, we learned this embedding where we clustered parts of the dresses that looked similar into the same, you know, same region of the embedding. And then the different part, different clothing got clustered you know, separated out in different parts of the embedding if they look different. Once you have this embedding, now you get this really interesting thing. So you can go and do unsupervised learning and you can find these style clusters. And each style cluster stands for some very unique thing, like people wearing a plaid shirt and say, you know, and glasses. That's one particular style, let's say. Uh, another style is a dark jacket, jacket and say a white shirt. And when you look at these style clusters, because we've collected this information from the whole world, we had actually started with sort of three years of Instagram data from 2013 to 2016. And uh, because we've collected around the whole world, you can then look at a particular style cluster and then go and look at, well, which cities uh, did those images come from and which uh, times of the, of the year did they wear those clothes. And you find really fascinating stuff. So there are some very unique clusters. For example, we had one cluster that had, and I'll, I'll share the slides with you, but this very unique headgear. And it turns out when you go and you look at which cities it comes from, there's one city that lights up. It's Lagos. And this is the Galea headgear that women wear there. And it just pops right out. Uh, so, you know, we found very distinctive things that people wear in different parts of the world by looking at these style clusters. We also found one very distinctive cluster that was not actually spatially unique. So it was, when you look at the cluster, it's pretty obvious. It's people wearing sort of these heavy dark jackets with sort of shirts underneath, a layered shirt underneath. And it turns out you, when you look at, you know, which cities they come from and which time of the year comes sort of x-axis as a city and the y-axis as the time, uh, you can actually see all cities have this but it's winter that it pops up. So, in, and you also see the Northern Hemisphere pops up in December and January. And uh, conversely, in the Southern Hemisphere cities, it pops up exactly six months later. So essentially, just by looking at these clusters, you then go and look at where the data is coming from and you understand how those people live at that time. Or if you were to go and visit that place, you should go and look at this cluster and say, oh, I'm going there in January. I think this is the kind of clothing I need to take so that I can blend with everybody who's there. Hmm. Those are sort of the distinctive clusters. On the flip side, there are these very standard clusters. It turns out there are some things that the whole planet wears. Like there's no one city that's very unique, no time of the year, and that is plaids. Plaid shirts are popular in the whole planet. Also blue shirts, button-down blue shirts. Like people wear that, just it's their standard go-to kind of slightly formal wear that they wear when they're going out and taking selfies of themselves. So that was very interesting. So we that was our original street style work. And so that actually led us to sort of this geo-style work where we said, this is interesting. Can we automate sort of discovering very unique clothing across the world? And so we created a whole mechanism where you can find spikes in these clusters when people really dress in something. And it was fascinating. So we now found out things like sporting events, uh, protests. So if everybody dresses a particular way in a protest, then there's a big spike in those clothes. So for example, in uh, Spain, there was these protests in 2013 or 2014 for uh, Catalan. And so they all dressed in these yellow shirts on that one day. And when we were doing the recognition, there was a big spike in the in the yellow shirt wearing and we could go and say, but there's something interesting going on there. It's a political rally and you can just find that. So we learned about a social event that we didn't know about just by mining the sort of visual. And so in order to do this, 
were you able to use the embeddings that you created for Grok style, GrokNet, uh, kind of out of the box, or do you have to customize the loss function or the training data or some aspect of the system? Training data, yes, not the loss function. This one has actually we used a pretty. This is a Grok style, so this work also started in 2016, so it was more in that era. Um, GrokNet is very recent. We just use the standard recognition uh, box to learn this embedding with a you know very simple amount of training data. We had I think twenty seven thousand labels to recognize different at- attributes of clothing. Now this was very focused on clothing. If you had to recognize food or recognize activity, we'd have to apply a slightly different uh, training. But we we did the simple thing of recognizing some attributes, and then what was interesting was this unsupervised sort of recognition of the style clusters. That's where it became interesting. After you learn the embedding, then discovering these style clusters is where you they sort of get this rich, rich uh, discovery process, which is fun. Mm-hmm. You talk about this as being part of an era where every image is understandable. And this kind of the word understanding has a lot of connotations. I think in this case, we're talking about humans using this as a tool to increase their understanding of the, the cultures. Does this play into computers being able to better understand the images as well? Oh, yeah. So that would be the, the so computers, so I was taking as granted that the computers can do the recognition piece, right? If they, sure. if they do a good job and they recognize it, that's great. But the deeper question of actually understanding cultural trends and understanding sorts of socioeconomic, you know, social events or uh, events of great political import, understanding that just by looking at the data is something that you would hope uh, an algorithm could do. And we are a long way off from that. But this takes the first step, says, can we actually recognize these events that are very unique? And then actually, and in fact, uh, there's a question. So you recognize a visual event. Everybody's wearing a yellow shirt, but it's just a yellow shirt. But uh, yeah, one of the things we found also, one of our style clusters was uh, there was a big spike somewhere around uh in the middle of this time period, and we we're looking at it, it was of a yellow shirt with V-neck and graphics on it. And it turns out we had discovered World Cup soccer. So everybody was wearing the World Cup soccer, uh, you know, the insignia and all of that. And we just recognized that in the style cluster. So you can find these clusters, but then if you correlate them with captions and other stuff that's going on, you start to see culture. You, you can recognize something as a cultural event versus a sport, sporting event. So that's where it starts becoming interesting, where you can have the algorithm hopefully recognize new uh, you know, cultural events. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, and so where do you see this going? What, what's next in you know, the next step or two in this line of research for you? There's a, I'm super excited about this kind of, you know, temporal recognition. And uh, yeah, I think this is just, it's a huge opportunity because of the amount of visual data we have. So one of the big next steps we're looking at is taking this and applying it in the context of satellite imagery. So again, you know, can we look at large scale trends around the planet where something interesting spikes up that's local, something that's cyclical, right? That that changes season by season versus something that's a one-off. And that's sort of what we discover in geostatics. If you discover the one-off events, are they problematic or are they a good outcome? So those and here we're talking about examples like forest fires or landslides or crop growth or, or things like that. Yeah, so those are we looked at. Yeah, and there was a you know algal bloom. All of those things are things that you can actually study. There's incredible satellite image data 
Can you then, you know, there are things that are done cyclically, as I said, just seasonal. And then there are things that are the, the man-made. And that's exactly what we're trying to analyze. And we're working in this case with crop scientists. And they are actually, they are very interested. I mean, this makes a huge difference. If you can make simple predictions of how just seeing sort of some early signals, you can predict how they change over time, for example, which our event, you know, mechanism can do because it basically tries to fit sort of the temporal signal of the, of the pattern itself. Thing, then you can make a huge difference in you know predicting whether or not you'll have a productive crop, whether you should take some steps to mitigate problems that you're seeing early on. So those are the kinds of problems you're looking at. Awesome. So satellite images, any other uh, future directions for this? Uh, so I, that's one of the big ones that I'm very excited about. But we continue even in the context of, you know, uh, as I said, you know, Instagram is one example, but all of the, the social, you know, the rich variety of social media, looking at what people wear is one piece, but there's so much more, you know, our activities. And as I said, how do we uh, congregate? How do we, you know, do we, are we just loners who are taking selfies against monuments or are there actually groups of us? And so there's a lot more to do on understanding sort of social interaction in this context too, which is, uh, so it's two different, uh, you know, satellite images versus human data sort of, but there are two very interesting and distinct paths to take, which I'm excited about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kavita, thanks so much for taking the time to share with us what you've been up to. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.